In episode 9, we talked about what it takes to make an app, but we left out a really important role, and that's of the product manager. That's what today's episode is all about, and we're really happy to be joined by David Short, an actual living, breathing product manager. Thanks for having me. Welcome to Copec Explained Software, the podcast where we make computing intelligible. Now, today we have a special guest. We have David Short, who, full disclosure, is a friend of ours, but is a real-life product manager, and he's had this role at multiple companies managing software teams. So, David, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I am a product manager at a bank right now where I'm responsible for the Zelle P2P Payments app. And before that, I spent a few years as a product manager at Wayfair, uh, an e-commerce company where I was responsible for the product descriptions and names. In both cases, I had teams of software engineers who were developing code based off of the you know work I was doing to understand the customer needs and set the vision for what that code should end up being. Um, prior to product management, I spent most of my career in management consulting where I specialized in payments. So I did a lot of work for the card networks, the banks, the various different institutions that accept money as well. So retailers and, and other places and really did a lot of uh, strategy work trying to understand, you know, what business should those companies be in five years down the road. Um, I'm from Dallas originally, and uh, we went to college together. So, uh, you know, went to college in New Hampshire with uh, with Copec. Thanks for sharing all that, David. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about how you made that shift and how you became a product manager? Yeah. So it's actually kind of difficult to get into product management, I would say. So, I wouldn't say going from management consulting to product management is a particularly common path, although I do know some other people that have, that have taken that path. In general, there are a few different ways you can do it. So Google and actually the bank I work at and not very many other companies actually do hire people straight out of college into associate product management programs. There are probably, I don't know, I, I know of maybe like 10 companies that do that. It's, it's relatively uncommon. Most companies hire people with a lot of experience. Um, typically from an engineering background or from some kind of project management experience within the institution. And so I'd say that's, again, a pretty common way is to shift from some other role within a company into product management by kind of demonstrating that you have the skills necessary. But for me, I really just kind of took a step back in my career a little bit. I took a pretty junior role at Wayfair in order to break into the industry. And so, again, Wayfair does have an um, associate program where they bring people in straight out of undergrad. So there are, you know, those, those junior roles that a lot of other companies don't have. And so, yeah, the, um, the path was really just difficult. I interviewed for almost six months trying to, trying to find a product management role. And I had basically given up because I kept getting interviews and then I would talk to people and they'd be like, yeah, we just want someone with more of a technical background. And I was like, well, I'd never claimed to be a software engineer. I don't know why you interviewed me if that was like a requirement. But um, ultimately, I had a friend from college who worked at Wayfair, and uh, Wayfair actually did have uh, quite a lot of management consulting people sort of throughout the company. And so uh, even within product management, there were a number of people that had made the transition that way. And so I joined and sort of helped out initially, and then ultimately, you know, took on full responsibility for an independent development team, um, and then, you know, multiple projects and things like that. So it was 
I would say there isn't necessarily like the, the, the most standard path is that sort of APM program straight out of straight out of undergrad. And otherwise, a lot of times it's people come from engineering, people come sometimes from consulting, sometimes from having started businesses themselves and kind of, you know, led development teams in that way. They had a startup and sometimes companies will acquire uh, startups and then have the CEO of that startup become a product manager. And yeah, so anyway, <laughs> I guess I answered a little bit more than you were asking, but um, that's how anyone could become a product manager, I guess. No, that's great. It's really helpful to get a sense of that big picture. I guess one other thing to throw out there is business school is also a way that some people end up coming into product management. Again, I would say that's that's not super common. And I would say most often those are people that already have some kind of a technical background or at least sort of a startup background. So have a little bit more context and aren't just, again, coming from like a pure, uh, I don't know, marketing background or something like that. And then jumping from an MBA program straight into a product role. Let's go to basics. So for people that have no idea what a product manager is, how would you describe the role? And let's keep it specifically to the type of roles you've been doing in software products. Yeah. So I would say that it's about setting the vision for the product. And so it really is just understanding what is the customer problem that you're trying to solve, talking to those customers in order to, in order to get there, and then literally creating work for software developers to then tackle. And so you work collaboratively with the engineers in order to break down, you know, you set a vision, you work with designers, you work with a lot of different, um, you know, people within the company and you set the vision and then you develop the path forward for the engineers to actually make that vision a reality into tangible software that customers can use. And so a lot of people say the PM is the CEO of the product. I really don't think that that's true because, PMs tend to not have direct authority over the engineering teams that they're working with, at least in in the cases I've been involved with. The engineering organizations are separate. They have their own management structure. The engineers don't report to the PM. And so you can't fire them. You can't um, reprimand them. You don't actually write the reviews. You may give input into some of those things. Um, And so it's more of an I I like to think of it, and it's probably because of my background, as a consultant of the product. So you're sort of leading and influencing without the direct authority. And so you do a lot of analysis in order to understand what's the most valuable thing that that team of developers could be doing, given the mandate that has been set for um, and largely established by the product manager. So as someone who doesn't have a a software um, development background, what do you think are some of the important things for a non-programmer or a non-software developer to know when you're working with um, a team of software developers and to know about just programming and software engineering? So I think the first thing is to be totally transparent about what your skill level is one way or the other. So while I have never been a developer, I have, you know, learned some basic coding in a few different languages. And so I don't pretend to be a developer. I make it very clear that I'm going to be setting the vision. I'm not going to tell them how they should do it because the technical decisions on, you know, how can we actually build software that can, you know, have hundreds of thousands of users every day or, you know, millions of transactions processing throughout those kinds of technical things are not something that I'm going to be able to give them input on. But what I can do is tell them this is how many, you know, hundreds of thousands of users we're going to have. This is like the the peak volume we expect. I'm I need to give them the details so that they can then make the decisions and then I just ask questions. And so when there are very technical things going on, the way I try to break problems down is like what are the inputs and outputs of each piece of work that needs to be done and that's how I try to at least wrap my head around what it is that the engineers are doing. So, you know, what data comes in, what comes out, how are we transforming things and how is this ultimately going to impact the customer, which is the the reason we should be doing anything that we're creating a better experience for the customer or, you know, less risky experience for the customer, et cetera. Um, In terms of the technical sort of 
specific things that I've learned over time. I'd say testing was a big part of it that I didn't necessarily understand beforehand. I was sort of thinking just about manual testing, but all of the you know automated testing that uh, developers can do in terms of unit tests, integration tests, regression te- uh, testing, et cetera, is something that ends up taking a lot of the developer time. And it's just not something that I expected coming in. Um, the architecture is another area of the, the technical space where I probably do get a little bit more involved. So, you know, when we're, when we're really just saying, how do we, uh, structure this? I think I, I just have a, a way of, of looking at things that I think can be helpful to the developers to, to understand, you know, the, the quick, the quickest steps, the, like, can we remove this piece of the infrastructure because we don't actually need that. We're just like passing, you know, information through and we're not making any transformation here. And so, you know, I'm sometimes I'm wrong when I ask those questions, but at least like, I think having the um, less technical uh, depth can sometimes be helpful because you'll just ask the dumb question that the developer just drew it that way because it's the way he built something else in the past, but it wasn't, you know, it may have been necessary then, but it, it, it might not be now. Um, and then I would say that the the big thing to really focus on is defining the functional and non-functional requirements for a developer whenever you're asking them to do something. And so the the functional the the example I like to to use for this is um, you could um, write a ticket in a way that you um, you were expecting a bicycle, but the developer ends up creating a car, right? So you can't you don't just say like I need something to you know travel ten miles. You tell them that like it needs to be less than a hundred dollars, and or you know whatever you 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 set constraints. You say you know I only need to be able to go you know I need to be able to do it within an hour. I don't need to be able to do it within you know five minutes or whatever. And so you know making clear not just what is it that needs to happen, but like what are the other pieces of context that might help the developer know, like, can I take a shortcut here versus do I need to build this in a really robust way that's going to take a lot more time? So in our previous episode about making apps, we talked about a few other roles beyond software developers. We talked about designers, testers, and marketing. I'm wondering in your role, what your interactions are like with those roles as well. Yeah. So I have a designer who works on both my team and a lot of other teams that are adjacent. And so I don't have, you know, he's not joining all of our meetings and things like that, which is is common. So there are there are scrum teams or, you know, development groups where there will be a designer that's fully embedded. They're they're involved, you know, in the same way that the the product manager is, you know, day to day. And uh, both times, actually, that I've worked with designers, it has been in uh, a little bit more of a, a shared way that the designer is supporting, you know, multiple groups. At Wayfair, I had very little design support. Um, I really liked working with the designers. They were just really strapped. And so, you know, I think there was one project where maybe I got one day per week of a designer's time for a couple of months, but I think that was like the highest, um, you know, design exposure I had. Uh, and oftentimes it would be more like I had like a few hours, you know, a month to be able to, you know, schedule a meeting and talk to a designer and, and do a lot of the design work, you know, myself up front and then get them to sort of give feedback. So uh, why, by, I, by no means am I a designer. I um, tend to just take a, a scrappy approach and, you know, take screenshots of things and kind of cut something together and then make clear like this is a wireframe this is not like a you know high fidelity mock-up that the developer needs to hold really closely to um while uh in my new role i I have a lot more of the the designer's time and so we do have you know high fidelity mock-ups that we're able to do you know user research with have customers actually um play around with the prototype and actually you know see are they are they able to take the actions do they understand how it works do they get confused about any of the the design decisions that we may have made um, in terms of marketing, I haven't actively worked with marketing too much. I know that it depends a lot on what it is that you are doing. We actually did just start to engage with the marketing team at the at the bank now because I think they are thinking about doing some some advertising around Zelle. 
Um, but that's, that's honestly something I'm, I'm kind of excited to, to get involved with because I, my second job in my career was actually digital advertising research. So it is something I know a little bit about and, um, would, would really love to, to have more of a, more of a say there and, you know, help to, to, to get my products featured and, um, show, you know, the great customer experience that we can provide. I would say that those are sort of the, the main, uh, external stakeholders. There's also analysts, um, which, at the bank tend to be, I mean, in, in some ways, developers, I mean, they, they tend to write Python code in order to do their analysis and, you know, we'll build dashboards and things like that in order to, to help us understand how our products are performing, um, you know, where customers are, are running into issues, et cetera. So analytics is a, is a big thing at some companies and, and not at others. I would say as a product manager, I do a lot of the analytics myself too. Again, the analyst resources are a little bit strapped, uh, especially with COVID. A lot of the, the resources got, you know, reorganized within the bank to really focus on, um, you know, helping with the areas that, that really changed as a result of, you know, customers not being able to go into branches and things like that. So what kind of tools do you use in product management? How do you communicate with the people that you're managing? And how do you keep track of progress? And what other tools are, are involved? Yeah, so I'd say Jira is probably the most commonly used tool uh, across product management organizations. And so we use that to write stories and epics for the, the work that our developers are going to do. And we, we use that to track the work. And so we break down you know, large initiatives into uh, more tangible bite-sized pieces that a developer can execute in a you know, reasonable period of time. And then you know, once all of the, the stories for that epic are completed, we have you know, completed that, that fundamental journey and you know, that new customer experience is available or whatever that software conversion is completed, et cetera. Um, then I would say the Google suite is probably the, the second thing that I use the most. So um, you know, Google Docs, Google uh, Sheets, Google Slides, um, are definitely a way that I do a lot of the um, analysis and presentation of the ideas that I have. Confluence is another piece of software that Atlassian developed that we use a lot for internal sort of wiki documentation. So a lot of the, every project that we work on, we develop a Confluence page, which breaks down the problem, links off to the designs, explains what it is that we're trying to solve, what are the you know benefits, what's the impact of the work, how much effort do we think it's going to take, and you know what are the phases of the project, et cetera. So you know what, what's going to get into the hands of customers as quickly as possible. Outside of that, um, Slack and Zoom are definitely a, a very heavily used uh, these days, especially. So uh, a lot of communication. I would say that that honestly is a big part of the the product manager job. Really, is just communication, getting everyone aligned on what it is that the team is going after, not just the developers, but you know other people within the organization. That this is what these engineers are focused on. This is what customer experience we're going to expect as a result, and these are the you know successes that we're. Uh, expecting based off of the work that we're doing in the future. Figma, InVision, and Mural are various pieces of software that designers have used and that I've worked with a little bit. Um, right now, we're mostly using Figma for our designs. Mural is a piece of software that we've been using to do remote whiteboarding sessions, and I've really enjoyed working with it. The designers on my team have introduced it to me, and I found it really useful because Obviously, I've actually never met any of the people that I'm working with right now. I, I joined fully remotely. And so a lot of the meetings and ceremonies we would have the, with the engineers, we would have a whiteboard and we would sort of diagram out architecture and things like that. And so being able to collaborate in a shared document has been uh, definitely really helpful. So I think the fact that we're on Google Suite is also great. If I were still in you know Microsoft Office world, um, I feel like I would be 
a lot more frustrated with uh, re- remote work. And I think that the the sharing um, aspect. I mean, obviously, Microsoft has you know their 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 version of the the, the shareable online documents, but it's just uh, I find the, the Google Suite to work a lot better for that. And then finally, um, Snowflake for SQL access um, has been something that I had never used before uh, joining this this bank, but has been really really helpful. And then I use Jupyter Lab for for Python to uh, do some of that you know analytical work that I was talking about before. That's something that I actually just just learned in the last couple of weeks, and so you know hoping to to really build out my my Python skills. Obviously, Jupyter Lab doesn't have to be specifically for Python, but it's it's what I've been using it for. Can you walk us through a day in the life of a product manager? <laughs> so it's the classic thing that, you know, there is no typical day. But um, for me, I uh, usually start working at a little before 8 a.m. Um, and I try to check my to-do list and knock out something before I actually look at email or Slack to just like get my day going in a positive direction and not be, you know, fully driven by the alerts and messages from other people. Um, then I do check email and Slack and um, start, tr- sort of start to try and get things on, on other people's radar, check in on some of the projects. And then we have stand up with the uh, one of the teams that I'm um, responsible for at 9.45 a.m. And then at 10 a.m. I have another team that we have a stand up for. So during those meetings, it's basically just a every single person. We, we look at the JIRA board and we talk about, you know, what is it that we did yesterday? What is it that we're going to do today? And do we have any blockers? Blockers being the real point of the stand-up, finding out if any of the developers are in a state where I need to reach out to another team or the tech lead needs to you know, step in and, and help them out or um, you know, basically just, just finding ways to make sure that, that they're going to be able to get their productive work done and they're not being you know, stopped by, by some, something outside of our control. Um, meetings are basically most of my day, to be honest. So I'll have you know, weekly check-ins with a, a lot of different people. We have you know other team ceremonies with the engineers. So uh, once a week, we do backlog refinement. We um, where we're looking at the the stories that have sort of been in the backlog and identifying the ones that we want to groom with the engineers so that they're then ready to actually be worked on. Uh, we then have that session of grooming with the with the developers where we'll review the stories from Jira and estimate how much work it'll be and usually assign a, a developer to work on it or just say, you know, anyone can take this one when they're available. We do retro uh, every two weeks. And so during the, the retrospective, we um, really just try and understand, you know, what went well, what didn't go well, are there things that we want to change and, you know, understand that everything that we're doing is flexible. So what is it that, um, you know, we can change about the way that we're working to, to be more effective. Uh, demos are another big thing that we do. So as, you know, software gets developed, the uh, engineer will show uh, product and engineering and sometimes design the, uh, the work that's been completed before we then, um, launch it out to customers. Uh, architecture reviews and discussions are another big, big piece of it. So, you know, I'll have a lot of meetings with with various other engineering teams to, to make decisions on how work that is going to have, you know, effects on other teams is going to be done. What are the phases that we're going to do? When are people going to complete things such that, you know, work can be handed off between teams? Uh, can we work on things in parallel? You know, where do we need to have check-ins and, you know, stop gaps to make sure that we don't step on each other's toes or um, end up in a place where, you know, our, our two pieces of don't work together and, you know, the whole thing was basically worthless. Um, and then I'd say documentation is, a, is another big piece of the job. So, so writing out, you know, user stories, what is it that we, we want customers to be able to do, uh, developing user flows, what are the, the actions that they're going to need to take and, you know, the sort of backend processes that are going to need to happen simultaneously in order to enable that. 
um, breaking down the high fidelity mockups that the designers have built to to really make clear what are the requirements for every piece within that. Does the you know field need to have a limit on the number of characters? What kind of you know encoding do we need to do? Are we expecting emojis to be able to be you know entered? Things like that. Um, going back to, to one of your, your prior episodes that I really enjoyed. <laughs> um, and then uh, I'll also sometimes be making wireframes that I might hand off to a designer to then develop those, those high fidelity mockups. And then capacity planning is another big, big piece. So there's a lot of sort of upward uh, information that the product manager is responsible for. So making clear to you know, leadership and, and other parts of the organization what it is that this team is doing how they're going to be allocated across, you know, various initiatives. When do we expect them to be able to work on, you know, future initiatives that, that um, we think are going to be valuable, but we just don't have enough, you know, developers to, to focus on right now and building those confluence pages that I, that I talked about before. So ultimately it's really about setting the strategy and the vision and then communicating that out both to people within the organization and to the developers in a way that they can actually create software that, pe- that people can use. You've described, I think, in a proper level of detail that most people can now understand what your role is on a day-to-day basis. But what gets you excited about it each day? What do you really enjoy most about being a product manager? And maybe on the flip side, also tell us what the worst part is. What's the part that's the most annoying or the part that you really dread? So I would say the best part of being a product manager is launching software. So I, I love that I get to actually put something out there into the world that hundreds of thousands of people are using. And I get to see that, you know, in consulting previously, I would spend a, a lot of the same, you know, effort on developing really similar analysis of like, what is it that we should be going after? What's the most valuable thing? But all I would produce is a PowerPoint, and then I would hand it off to the company. And maybe we would see, you know, some impact from that down the line. But a lot of times you just didn't really ever hear anything about it. Uh, as a product manager, the all the work that I do tangibly gets into the hands of like real users, and that's the part that that really makes it exciting for me. Um, it also makes it very stressful because uh, while I can you know delight hundreds of thousands of people, I can also uh, break the the um, the tools of those people as well, and so uh, that can be that can be very stressful. So you know, ultimately, I'm on call 24 hours a day. If our software goes down. Obviously, there's an engineer who's, who's on call as well, and I'm going to be relying a lot on that engineer to, you know, roll back whatever it is that that we deployed that, that led to that breaking change. But um, that is a, a big difference too that I, I, I never had to deal with as a consultant. The the impact um, was was there, but it was not uh, as as big in both directions, both positive and negative, in the sense that you just didn't see that that tangible. If I'm not solving something right now, like people are really being hurt directly. Um, I would also say that at a bank, there's a lot of top-down direction around cybersecurity, which I think is really important and it makes sense. But it's just like a little bit annoying that as a product manager, I get a lot of you know direction on what we have to do from a security perspective, as opposed to um, just what we'd like to do from like a customer experience perspective. So obviously, it's really important that um, we do invest in that cybersecurity. So I totally understand why why we are doing those things. Um, but I've just uh, in previous roles, I didn't have so much direction from sort of a top-down organization that was, you know, directing that, you know, we need to upgrade this to a new version because it's risky or we need to, you know, um, change the way that we're tokenizing data to like an even more secure way, things like that, that are, I think, great. Ultimately, you know, our customers losing their data is, again, one of the things that really stresses me out. So it's absolutely great to, to invest there. It's just, and it's not something that I'm an expert in. So having other people to, to tell me what it is that, that we should invest there, like totally makes sense. But it does uh, a little bit uh, suck that you have that uh, lack of control a little bit that I would say, you know, probably 
more than 40% of the work that we've done since I've joined this team has been um, that kind of cybersecurity work that I didn't really have control over, just had to say, yep, we should work on that. That's important. And we you know, need to protect our customers' data. So what advice would you have for someone who wants to you know, break into product management or is interested in this field? So I would say learn to code is probably the the, um, the first thing that I would recommend. I'm not honestly a developer, but I think that it will make the path into product management easier if you do have at least some capabilities. Not that you need to be, you know, a full stack engineer or anything, but just have a little bit of a understanding of of how what it is the developers are doing, such that you can at least ask the right questions and be a little bit more understanding when bugs come in because you'll have experienced it yourself and you, and you get like how difficult it is. And it's not that they are bad at what they're doing. It's just an inevitable fact of, you know, making something complex. Um, Outside of that, I would say I just read a lot. So, you know, there are a lot of books about, you know, um, cracking the PM uh, interview. Um, There's a lot of like design resources that I think that I think are good. So so learning to code, learning to design a little bit, at least. So, you know, I read um, the design of everyday things and ultimately talk to product managers. And then the, the, the real answer is that it depends on where you are. So if you're, if you're an undergraduate, then, you know, you can apply to Google, you can apply to Facebook, you can apply to some of these APM programs. If you are, you know, later in your career and you don't have a, uh, engineering background at all, again, I would, I would recommend learning to learning to code a little bit. And then probably what you're going to have to do is go to a company where there are product managers and then prove to them that, that you can do it. So you, you may take, you know, a role in operations or analytics or, you know, some other um, related field that's not actually product management, but where you're going to have access to product managers. And there they can see how talented you are and that you have that, that skill set of um, being able to understand the strategic vision, being able to, you know, develop a, a clear vision for, for the future and, and be empathetic to customers and able to, to really understand what it is that their problems are so that, so that your developers can solve those problems. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, David. I think you've really given our listeners a good sense of what it's like being a product manager and how they interact with software developers. How can our listeners get in touch with you? And is there anything that you'd like to plug? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at David G. Short. And I have a website, productandpayments.com, where I write mostly about the books that I've read, uh, but also about product management and some of the experiences that I've had there. So um, that would be where you can find out more. And I'm also going to plug that we co-host another podcast together called Business Books and Company. And you can find out more about it at businessbooksandco.com. Well, Rebecca, what a great week interviewing David. How can our listeners find us on Twitter? So we're at Copec Explains, K-O-P-E-C-E-X-P-L-A-I-N-S. Um, let us know if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. And we also want to remind everyone to please leave us a review on your podcast player of choice, whether that's Overcast or Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps with the visibility of the show. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for having me.